invite you to turn to the book of Exodus, book of Exodus and the 24th chapter. I believe that if we tallied the number of weddings that we have performed here at Emmaus Road Church over the course of our relatively brief 10-year history, it would, it would prove, if nothing else, that this church is a love factory. I think of the... I checked this out in the first two years, I performed 10 weddings. Uh, there, are, there are many things that make weddings wonderful. From this pastor's view at least, my point of view at least, however, there is a moment in a wedding ceremony that tops them all. As touching as is the bride's procession on her father's arm, as as important as is God's word addressing the couple during the meditation, at least that's the way we do it, as solemn as is the couple's exchanging of vows, and of course as highly anticipated as is the kiss, for this pastor, the most poignant moment is when I get to say, these vows which you have now made before God and these witnesses, I do now confirm in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and in accordance with the authority vested in me as a minister of the gospel and by the state of South Dakota, this is it. I now pronounce you husband and wife. You're no longer two. God has joined you together. May no one and no thing separate you. That, that's it. That's, the, for me, the most sacred moment. That moment of consecration. That moment of formalization of the marriage covenant. The vows, as important as they are, they're, they're words. The kiss, it's just lips touching until... That moment, until that moment, and what a moment it is. We are now halfway through the book of Exodus, and what a journey it has been. Th think back on all of the dramatic, momentous occasions, the, the burning bush, the ten plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea, the ten commandments. But my dear friends, there is no scene in the book of Exodus and no moment more dramatic, more poignant than the one described here in Exodus chapter 24. It's because here, this is the most holy moment. Here is the confirmation of the covenant between God and his people. Here is the moment of formalization of the sacred relationship established by God in which he covenants to belong to his people and his people belong to him. It is this, this moment that the entire book of Exodus has been waiting for. <laughs> and so I want to invite you if you'd stand for the processional, as it were. Here comes the bride and groom. 
and follow along as I read Exodus chapter 24. Then he, that is God, then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words of the Lord have spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning, and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain, twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And, and Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. And half of the blood he threw against the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone and the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. And so Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. And then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses 
entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Oh God, we've gathered together in this place and we can draw near to you and commune with you and hear you and lay before you our cares and our fears and our joys. We, we get to know you. And it's all because of something that began in that holy moment. Something that began then that pointed to something even more holy. The fulfillment of your eternal covenant in the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ who was the sacrifice and whose blood covers your people who trust you. Oh Lord, may, may your spirit awaken our hearts and revive us and open our eyes to behold what a moment this is, what a gift this is, what a blessing this is. And may it all serve to build a people who can walk comfortably and confidently and joyfully and peacefully into all that you have for them in Jesus Christ. We ask in his name. Please be seated. The book of Exodus was originally addressing, addressing those people of Israel who had been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years and, and now they're encamped on the east bank of the Jordan River. They are about to cross over into the promised land. They're about to begin a new chapter. It says, This is new ground. They're about to step into a place they had never been before. They are about to engage with people groups they had not known before. And like us, when we are about to cross over a threshold into something new, something different, something completely different, there is an obvious mixture of eager anticipation and as well as some some degree of elevated anxiety. These people were aware of, of an eyewitness report of giants in the land. The, the place where they, that they were about to set foot was inhabited by hostile forces and grim, battle-tested warriors. They clearly understood. They, they, they clearly understood as, as they were poised to enter this promised land that they were about to get into a fight. That's what waited for them. And because God was in it, 
God had led them to this and promised this, they, they anticipated miracles. They'd, they'd seen a few. But not without setbacks, because they had seen a few of those. They could expect days of victory, but not without some losses. There would be no doubt times of joy filled wonder as well as days marked with inevitable heartache. And the message of the book of Exodus was intended to strengthen their faith and to deepen their courage and to engender assurance that God would be with them every step of the way. Through it all. And this new chapter, this new place of residence was, it was the fulfillment of God's promise. Way back in Exodus chapter 3, God had said, I have come down to deliver them out of the land of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. It was right there within sight. In Exodus chapter 6, God had said, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham. I will give it to you for a possession. Those Israelites standing on the verge of the fulfillment of this promise would have been, they would have been familiar with God's word in Exodus chapter 33 verse 1 that says, depart, go up from here, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Loved ones, I expect that there are, there are those of you here today who may be on the verge of something new in your life. You're standing on the east bank of the Jordan, so to speak. There's something before you with a divinely blended mixture of knowns and unknowns, and, and, and there you stand, armed with some measure of confidence, engendering promises, specific promises that God has made to you, and those promises are designed to give you traction on those dark days, and designed to give you resilience in those troubled times. But how do you know? How, how do you know God will keep those promises? How can you be sure that God will fulfill every promise that he has made and bring you all the way home? The message of Exodus chapter 24 is that God's covenant relationship with his people is unchanging on the best days and on the worst days. His commitment to fulfilling his vows to you, his promises for you, it's unchanging in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, when you are gaining, when you're losing. When you are living or dying. So how 
How does what happens in Exodus chapter 24 do that? <laughs> how does it function? How did, Exodus, how did Exodus 24 strengthen the faith of the Israelites who are about to enter the promised land? How did this chapter engender assurance that God was unwaveringly for them and not against them, that God would never leave them nor forsake them? God confirms his relationship. He confirms his relationship with them through his covenant. And so that there's no, no question, no, no doubt, nothing left for misunderstanding. God marks his covenant with a ceremony. God confirms his covenant in writing and blood. God celebrates his covenant with his people with a meal. And God stamps a guarantee on his covenant through a display of his glory. That's my outline. We're going to look at those things one at a time. God's covenant, my friends, continues to function for us today in the same way, communicating his gracious, his gracious commitment to our eternal well-being. So, first of all, God marks the significance of his covenant with a ceremony. God had, you know, it, it, I guess, you know, follow this little metaphor, he, he sent out save-the-date invitations well in advance. In Exodus chapter 6, God says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And then again in Exodus chapter 19, you yourselves have seen how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And that's when things get serious. Exodus chapter 19 ends, the narrative portion ends with God inviting Moses to come up and, and, and telling, telling Moses to go down. I mean, you know, all these up and downs in this text, it's, it's like... You can lose track of how many trips Moses made to the top of Mount Sinai. Clearly, for an old guy, he is in really good shape. I am inspired by this text. Moses could do some ad for REI or North Face, I, you know, something like that. But then, in Exodus chapters 20 through 23, we hear the substance of God's covenant. The substance of how God and his people relate to one another. And then here in Exodus chapter 24, the narrative picks up again. And it's, it's a little clunky. In verse 1, then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. And then that meeting, the meeting that is introduced in verse 1, is described in verses 9 through 11. 
Meanwhile, verse 2 says, Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near and the people shall not come up with him. That meeting is described in verses 12 through 18. And if you're like me, I just go, why, why does the author do that? Doesn't it seem to make the narrative confusing? And, and I guess I would just simply say that if it accomplishes nothing else, it forces us to slow down. It forces us to slow down and pay careful attention to what is, what is certainly one of the most momentous occasions in all redemptive history. Loved ones, what we're seeing here is the acceptance of God's covenant conditions and the culmination of God's covenant promises in a ceremony, a ceremony much like a wedding, like the wedding between God and his bride. Why do we have weddings? Why all the hoopla? Why spend all that money? After all, you know, it, it, it's not the ceremony that makes us married. <laughs> no, not Technically, and, and certainly this text is not intended to inform us as to the extent of, of you know, people's wedding budgets, but, but this text does teach us that covenant relationships, significant covenant relationships, like a marriage, they matter to God. And because covenant relationships matter to God, they should be marked. And God marks the significance, the eternal significance of his covenant with his people with a ceremony. He marks it with a day and a moment in time so that they would remember it. Ceremonies are powerful and they are full of meaning, and God knows that, and that's why he commends them, and that's why he commands them. You see, there were days ahead for those Israelites. There were days, days on the horizon that would be certainly sunny days, but there would be cloudy days, and stormy days, and bad days, and bloody days, and dying days. Days when a meaningful and memorable marker like this covenant ratification ceremony would serve them and strengthen them and sustain them and perhaps even restrain them from all manner of temptations to compromise the significance of their covenant relationship with God. Ceremonies matter. Second, God confirms the solemnity of his covenant in writing and in blood. 
God spares no expense in communicating the sobering solemnity of his relationship with his people. The, the, the terms of the covenant were spelled out in writing there in Exodus chapters 23, I'm sorry, 20, 21, 22, and 23. And in Exodus chapter 24, verse 3, it says, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. So, so you know, he's just recounting what Moses did all that content that we've been covering the last several weeks. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then verse 4 goes on to say, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. You see, putting things in writing is also essential for remembering. (laughs) My wife tells me this all the time. Putting it in writing is essential for communicating God's will. Putting it in writing is essential for our life together as God's people. This is the beginning of the canon of Scripture. We're God's people because we're people of God's Word. And then in the second half of verse 4, Moses builds an altar... It says he, he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and, and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood of all those freshly killed animals and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Now, this altar represents God and how one is to approach God, namely through a sacrifice for sins. There's no other way to approach God but through a sacrifice for sins. And those 12 pillars represent each of the tribes of Israel. And as those blood sacrifices were made, you can can only imagine how it had to have taken them right back in their memory to that first Passover, where it was the blood of the sacrifice. The blood of the sacrifice. That was the only explanation for why they were not killed like all the rest of the Egyptians. It was blood. And while those pillars represent the people as one party in the covenant relationship, the blood that Moses collects clearly identifies God as the other party in the covenant relationship. And the throwing of this blood by Moses onto that altar, it signifies the acceptance of the people by God. And then, and then just to put another exclamation point, even a, a more emphatic exclamation point on the solemnity of it all, in verse 7, Moses, he reads the book of the covenant again. <laughs> then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And again, the people said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, 
and we will be obedient. You see that earlier reading, that, that was the invitation. Do you? Will you? It communicated intent. Will you have? Will you take? The second reading together with the second pledge of obedience is now what happens is that it is now made acceptable on the basis, not of their I do, but on the basis of the blood of the sacrifice. Don't miss that. The, the, the commitment by God to his people and the commitment of the people to God. This is, this is no uninformed commitment. Everybody knows exactly what they're doing, what they're getting into. The people heard God's word. They understood God's word. They saw the blood. They understood the meaning of the blood. And they are now resolved to obey the one who so utterly, graciously, and freely, and sovereignly, and decisively had delivered them. That's what it's on the basis of. And then what happens next is another thing I'm sure they would never forget. Verse 8. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Can you imagine? Um, just physically, what it would be like to be sprinkled with blood from Animals that were freshly sacrificed. I say it's solemn, it's serious, bloody. This is the moment when they, the, the other party in this covenant relationship, are set apart as God's holy nation, set apart as a kingdom of priests who shall represent God among the nations who reside in the land that they were about to enter. Can you just imagine that blood landing on you? But maybe more Significantly, that blood benefiting you. This, this blood sealing your identity and confirming your identity as a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. This blood confirming your, your intention to walk in obedience. And it's all grace. It's all because of the gracious initiative and covenant invitation of God. You didn't earn it. 
You didn't deserve it. You're only responding in the only appropriate way. Faith. Obedience. Thirdly, God celebrates the blessing of his covenant with table fellowship. <laughs> this, this text just has one astonishing thing after another. What happens next is amazing, but it's only possible, it, it's only possible because the, of the covenant which God has so graciously established and confirmed and the people have so gladly received. Look at verses 9 through 11. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And this is probably the most, one of the most amazing statements. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. God didn't lay his hand on them. I mean, who can see God and not die? That's their expectation. And rather than slaying them, God seats them at his table because of the book and because of the blood. They experienced fellowship with God. They saw him. Actually, actually they, I think they just saw his feet, right? They, or, or, you know, perhaps their gaze never really went higher than the pavement under God's feet. So, you know, um, and, and from that vantage point, under his feet, they ate and drank. One of the most remarkable meals recorded in all of Scripture no brown bagging it today, boys. There's meat on the table. <laughs> it's, it's not about the food, though. You know, it's, it's, it's not about the food at this wedding reception. It's what this meal signifies. It's all about the relationship between God and his people, the friendship between God and his people, the intimacy between a holy God and his people. The blessing of the covenant, you see, is God himself. The writer of the Hebrews remembered this day. And in Hebrews chapter 9, he writes, When every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats, sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And then, he, and then he shows what, what happened in Exodus chapter 24 is, is a foreshadowing of the one we know who is greater than Moses, the one who offered a sacrifice that was not temporary, 
but once for all. Hebrews chapter 10. Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. By a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Let's draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. With our hearts, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Loved ones, as, as we enter into our whatever is next, we will inevitably continue to fight. There is a fight. It's a fight against indwelling, indwelling sin. It's a fight against remaining sin. And we will fight until the day we die. Or Jesus comes back. But, but this fight with... This fight is with a freedom. It's, a, it's with a freedom from guilt. It's, it's with a freedom of a guilty conscience before God. Because our hearts have been sprinkled Clean. You see, those who have trusted in the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus for their sins, their hearts have been sprinkled clean. And, and, and listen, those whose hearts have been sprinkled clean cannot be unsprinkled. It's a once-for-all sacrifice. It, it's just done. It's completely done. If you have a conscience... It's a rare thing these days. But if you do, and you have some awareness of your guilt before God, and it just dogs you. It just dogs you because you're aware that you've offended God. And it dogs you because there's, you know there's nothing that you can do to satisfy His wrath against your sins. Listen, remember. Remember God's covenant with you in Christ, when you trust Jesus and you accept his sacrifice, it is once for all. Your guilty conscience is now eternally sprinkled clean. You are forgiven for your sins and you have no ground for fear of future wrath. Amen? And one day we will see his face. And we will eat and drink with him and enjoy him. For we have been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And not only, not, only have, not only have all the Christians here in this room today been invited to that, that feast. My non-Christian friends, you have been invited as well. You're invited. Phil Riken comments on this text. He says, God is always busy handing out invitations to his feast. Every time the gospel is preached, people are invited to eat and drink with God. God is getting ready to throw the last and longest banquet of all. The way to RSVP for that great banquet is to believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. And my prayer for you today is that you will RSVP. You will RSVP today.
Now, one more thing. I'm clearly bought bit off way more than I can chew here in this text, but we've seen the significance of God's covenant, we've seen the solemnity of God's covenant, and the way by which God draws us into the blessings of his covenant, but but really, how, how can we be absolutely sure that God will have us and hold us from this day forward? And God guarantees his covenant, I believe, with another little foretaste, and that is through a display of his glory. Exodus chapter 24 verse 16 says, the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. Verse 17 says, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire. When the term glory of God occurs in the Bible, it, as it does here, it, 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 it refers in general to the public display of God's infinite attributes, all that he is in his various perfections and in his intrinsic weightiness, just the gravity of it. It's it's God on display. So how do we know? How do we know that God is not going to bail out on us in this relationship? In the text We'll look at next week, Exodus chapters 25 to 27. God's about to give very specific instructions for constructing a tabernacle. A tabernacle is just this portable sanctuary for his presence. And, and, And there's these specific instructions for the building of this little portable sanctuary because God in God intends to come down. Not just on the top of the mountain. He intends to come down and dwell with his people. And that's because the aim of God's covenant with us is that he might reside with us. God with us. Emmanuel. The hope of glory. And the display of his glory in Exodus 24, it, it, it anticipates the day. It, it anticipates the day that will first be fulfilled in Exodus chapter 40, which is the last chapter of this book. That's when, that's when his glory is going to come down and fill that tent. But even more significantly, it anticipates the day of all days when God came down. When God came down and made himself supremely visible in the person and new covenant work of the incarnate Christ. God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the, of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. That's where we behold God's glory in all of its fullness. And the fulfillment of each and every promise included in God's covenant find their yes, their guarantee in Him. That display of God's glory. That's why through Him, through our Lord Jesus Christ, we utter our amen to the glory of God. Loved ones, whatever new season, whatever new chapter, whatever new place, whatever new thing, you are on the verge of. 
God will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will always be there for you, with you, even to the end of the age. God's covenant tells you so. Let's pray. Our surety is in Christ and in Christ alone. And his once for all sacrifice. In Christ Jesus we behold. We behold the appearance. The appearing of the glory of God. What majesty. What humility. What a precious thing you've done father. To make. Sinful humans. To be long holy to you forever. And we love that. We're thankful for that. And we humbly praise you for that. To the glory of Christ. Before we sing, I just want to remind you, uh, we love to pray for you today. And... Um, love to pray for those who are sick, pray for those who are injured, pray for those who are anxious about your what's next. Pray that God might reveal his glory to you in fullness. Turn the light on in your heart to behold Jesus and you could accept his RSVP today to his wedding feast. Let's stand and sing.